I think I mentioned to you last week that uh, I love um, archaeology, especially biblical archaeology. And um, I think I mentioned last week that it's almost weekly that something comes out, some new archaeological find or other thing that confirms the events that we find in the Bible. And so I'm on a couple of distribution chains and other things where I get regular emails and stuff on new things that are discovered. And um, I've got a stack of books on my shelf on some really great, neat books that talk about the archaeological things that have been found that um, prove over and over and over again what we see in the scriptures. And yet there are people that disregard them. There are people that, I was reading this week, that deny that Solomon ever had a kingdom. And I'm thinking, there's just too much evidence that suggests otherwise, you know. Well, what was interesting is um, this week uh, when I was in Kansas, I saw an article related to a new find in Jerusalem. And it was a piece of ivory, about yay big, that was all carved. And they dated it to the time of Solomon. And what's significant about that is, as we'll see here in the next few weeks, um, the Bible describes carved ivory that was used by Solomon in the temple. And up until this, they did not really have examples of what that might have looked like. And so here's this piece of carved ivory. Now, it doesn't mean that it came from, it was found in, in Israel, I believe it was found in Jerusalem, I don't remember all the details. It doesn't mean that it came from Solomon's temple. But the fact that holding in their hands now, they have what's described and the ornateness to it. And ivory at the time was actually considered more valuable than gold. So it's kind of interesting. So I just, it was neat to see that. It's just interesting how God does that. I'm just getting ready to start on First Kings. And the week before, I get this neat little email and an article on, on a find related specifically to what we're going to talk about. But we are in First Kings this morning. And as we typically do, I'm going to start with some um, maybe not so exciting or interesting introductory material. I'm just going to sort of lay the table. Um, and then we're going to get into our passage this morning, which is First Kings. We're going to go through just the first 11 chapters of First, of first Kings because we're going to focus on Solomon. And so um, we're going to spend 11 or 12 weeks doing this. Um, we're going to do one chapter at a time so you can sort of have an idea of where we'll be each week. But let's talk about the chronology first off of First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings were originally one book. Um, they span uh, about 410 years or so of Israel's history, from approximately 970 B.C. to approximately 560 B.C. So this would have ended, if you will, uh, about 600 years, five or 600 years before Christ. It begins with the uh, death of King David. That's the beginning of 1 Kings. We're going to talk about that this morning. And the coronation of King Solomon. And again, it goes through about the first 11 chapters or so. The rest of the book, the rest of 1 Kings, and all of 2 Kings, focuses on what we refer to as the divided kingdom. It's the kings of Israel before they went off into captivity. So it takes us pretty much from David's death all the way up into captivity. And even one of the last things we see in the the end of 2 Kings is a king being, the last Israel king, being released from prison in captivity. And so it covers that whole span of what we refer to as the divided kingdom. And that was an extremely tumultuous time for Israel. And so we're going to, again, look at just primarily the first 11 chapters. We'll come back at some point and and do the rest of this. But where this book actually gets placed into um, the history of Israel is it really comes after Samuel, his two books, which we 
recently had gone through. And actually, between the books of Ezra and, I, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so it kind of fits basically in that period of time. Now there's two other books that kind of correlate with First and Second Kings, and it's First and Second Chronicles. They cover a lot of the same material. We'll find some parallel passages where we'll find some additional information. And so they kind of go together there. So from a chronological standpoint, that's where this book actually fits. Authorship, we don't know who wrote it. Now, the author was not somebody who was there during Solomon's reign, and the reason we know that is because the book spans over 400 years, and he includes stuff at the end of that 400-year reign. He obviously didn't, the author didn't live for 400 years. So the author was not alive at this time. We know that he wrote this, just like Moses did with the first five books. Moses wasn't there on day one of creation, but nonetheless, he wrote accurately about the first day of creation, and so the author of 1 Kings writes accurately of the history of Israel here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there's some interesting things as we look in the book. He's going to mention at least three other sources that he used or relied upon to write this. Now, it doesn't mean that everything was taken from these sources, but he mentions three specific sources um, that he relies upon, and we find that throughout the book. They're probably governmental records would be the best way to describe it. Even secular kingdoms kept records of what happened. We keep records today of what happened. So, you know, the recent stuff here with President Trump taking stuff back to his home in Mar-a-Lago. Well, there's masses and masses of documents that are, that are um, put together, produced um, for each one of our own presidents. And so the same thing at this time back in Israel. And so the author actually references some of those books as he goes through here. So he probably was much like Luke in that regard. You know, Luke studied. That's how he came up with his gospel and with the book of Acts. And so he researched it. He talked to eyewitnesses. He looked at things. He may have looked at some other, right, there may have been other people that wrote things about Christ. And so Luke did his research. He studied those things, but still, it was all done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, Things that maybe were not true are weeded out. Things that are true are kept in. And so we end up with the author here again, who we don't know, who wrote First and Second Kings. He simply wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he wrote is an accurate history. And we see that, like I said, time and time and time again. Um, we see archaeology prove the things that we read here. There are still some people today that don't believe that David was a real person. And yet, archaeologically, we have the evidence that David was. And so, authorship, again, we don't know really who it is, but we can trust what he's written here. Um, Partly because he researched, but mostly because he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, what about themes or the purpose for the book? Why would he have written this? So, clearly, one of the reasons he had written 1 and 2 Kings was to write a history of Israel. I mean, that's much of the Old Testament. It's a history of Israel. It's a history of God's work in Israel with God's people. And so he clearly had that in mind. And he does that because he goes through all the lineage of the kings. You know, this king to this king to this king. And so we can see clearly that his, part of his intent was to write a history so that other generations might be able to see how God has worked in Israel's past. However, one of the themes that also arises in this book is... God's faithfulness to the covenant and Israel's lack of faithfulness to the covenant. In fact, if we were studying First and Second Kings all the way through, you're going to see time and time and time again that that theme surfaces back up. That God is faithful to his covenant and faithful to Israel, but Israel is not faithful to God. 
And he uses the, the stories of the kings to sort of drive that theme home. In fact, when you look at 2 Kings, you have the prophets Elijah and Elisha throughout 2 Kings, and they constantly warn Israel about their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to God and the fact that they will be taken away into captivity if they don't change their ways. And that's exactly what happens. That book ends with them ultimately in captivity. So one of his purposes is to write a history. But more important than that, he probably wrote this, um, these two books, as a warning to Israel when they were returning to the land after captivity. It's believed that he was probably one of the individuals that went back to Israel in the three waves of Israelites that went back. If you remember, after captivity, they were released. They were allowed to go back to Israel. They were, at one point, allowed to go back and to to build the temple. Then they were able to go back and to build the wall and the city around Jerusalem. And it's believed that the author was probably one of the Israelites that was able to go back to Jerusalem, and that he probably wrote this as a warning to those Jews going back to Israel, in some respects saying, don't let this happen again. What a great reminder that would be. If you have a history of Israel where you can show young Israelites going back to the land and saying, okay, these were the great days back with Saul and David and Solomon, and then look at what happened after that. And look at the warnings for 400 years that they rejected from God and God ultimately made good on His promise to send them off into captivity for 70 years. Now you get an opportunity to return back to the land. Don't be like Israel. And so it appears that that's probably one of his purposes. He was probably one of the individuals going back and was using this as a warning to them. Don't let this happen again. And so we see this theme and this purpose throughout the two books. Over the next couple of months, we're going to focus on just, again, the first 11 chapters or so. We saw that David was chosen by God to be Israel's king. And then when he promised David that he would have a descendant on his throne, God's plan and purpose was for David's descendants from there on to serve as the rightful kings of Israel. Now, with that in mind, there were always men, always men, who weren't content with God's purpose or God's plan. We cite a few of them here. Remember Saul, given the privilege to serve as the first king and almost from day one, didn't do a very good job. He was great at his military campaigns, but he wasn't a great spiritual leader for Israel. And so when God took the throne out of his hands and promised to give it to David, what did Saul do? Tried to kill David. Wasn't interested in God's plan. He was only interested in his own plan and purpose. When Saul died, Abner, the commander of his army, attempted to make Saul's son Ishbosheth king. Wasn't interested in God's plan with David. Ishbosheth would become king. Then even David's own son Absalom decided he wasn't content with God's plan, and so Absalom tried to overthrow David. Wasn't willing to accept God's plan. There's another individual. He's just called Sheba, but he's referred to as a worthless fellow in Second Samuel chapter 20, who again attempted another revolt to take the ten tribes away, was not content with God's plan. And so what we find is that even in those early years, there were men who were not content with God's plan for Israel. They had their own purpose and plan. You know, Israel was not supposed to be just some other nation that was ruled by kings like every other country. It was supposed to be God's people ruled by the man that God chose to shepherd them. 
And so as we begin this story today, as we begin this historical account of David's death and King Solomon's appointment to reign as king, we're going to see that exact same thing play out. There are still men, in this case a specific man, who doesn't want God's plan for Israel. He's got his own plans. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is a threat to Solomon becoming king. That's in the first few verses or so. We'll go ahead and read the verses, uh, first four verses with me here. We've got 1 Kings chapter 1. Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king, and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse, and served him, but the king did not cohabitate with her. So what we first see here is David is in some pretty rough shape. At this point, David is probably 70 years old because David became king at 30 and he had reigned 40 years. So he's basically 70 years old at this point. And he's confined to bed, it sounds like. His body's breaking down. He's cold. He can't keep warm. And so what his servants do is they go out and they find a young woman. They look all throughout Israel. They find a young woman, a Shunammite, which is from the northern part of Israel. It was one of the areas that um, Joshua and them had conquered when they came into the land, which means she's probably a Canaanite, not Jewish herself. But they go and they find her, and they bring her back. And ultimately, she serves as David's nurse. She becomes a, a concubine, ultimately. It means she's brought into his harem. But we're told very specifically that he doesn't have relationships with her. So she's not a concubine in that sense. She's part of his harem. But the purpose is not for personal relations. We'll just leave it at that. She's there to keep him warm. And so she crawls into bed with him, probably lays next to him, just to keep him warm. And so David's in some pretty rough shape here. Now, David's son, Adonijah, actually sees an opportunity here. Now, we see this in verses 5 through 10. He apparently believes that he's entitled to that throne. And he sees David being in the shape that he's in, and he decides to take advantage of it. Look at verses 5 through 10. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, that was one of David's wives, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. He had contended with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shemaiah, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoleth, which is beside El Rogel, and he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, and Solomon, his brother. So Adonijah, apparently, is David's fourth son. Three of his brothers are dead. So he's now the oldest surviving son. Um, You remember Amnon and Absalom were both killed. 
One of them, Absalom, tried to usurp the throne from his father. Um, another one, Chileab, we don't know anything about him. He's mentioned as a birth, but he's nowhere mentioned anywhere else. Scholars believe that he probably died shortly after birth or as a young child. So at this point, Adonijah is the oldest son. And in all the nations around them, the kingdom went to the oldest son. That's just typically the way it works. And so here's Adonijah, believing that he ought to be the next king. Now the problem with that is, we learn else, elsewhere here, and we'll see this in a moment, he, he knew that the kingdom was supposed to go to Solomon. But he wanted it himself. Now in spite of knowing the Lord's plan, Adonijah does three things to seize, seize the throne. The first one is that he puts together a small little army. It says that he put chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. He puts together this small little army. He then recruits two of David's inner circle. Joab, the commander of David's army, remember what he was like. He was a man who was only interested in his own things. You know, he went directly against David's own commands. Now, he was a good commander of an army, but David had some tension there because the guy just didn't listen to David. Always did what was right in his own interest. So, Adonijah recruits Joab, David's commander of his army. Once again, Joab is disobedient to David, isn't serving David's interests, serving his own. Finally, he then throws a coronation feast and he invites all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah and the king's servants. So he does these three things. Puts a little army together, recruits two of David's inner circle, and then invites all of his brothers, the king's sons, many of David's servants, brings all of them together, holds a big feast. The one thing that he doesn't do, though, the one thing he doesn't do is he doesn't doesn't invite some pretty important people. Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, which is one of David's mightiest fighting men, very faithful, and Solomon. He invites all his other brothers, but he doesn't invite Solomon. Why do you suppose that is? Because Solomon is supposed to be king, and he knows it. He doesn't invite David's closest supporter, Benaniah, and he doesn't invite Nathan the faithful prophet. Why? Because he knows exactly what he's doing. This is the man who's interested in only his own desires. A couple of takeaways as we look at this. One of them comes from what Adonijah says. Notice that he says in verse 5, I will be king. It's a very proud and arrogant thing. He was an arrogant, self-promoting man. He knew God's plan. We'll see that in a minute. But he wasn't interested in that. There was a, probably a sense of entitlement here. I'm the oldest son now. This is rightfully mine. The kingdom belongs to me. It doesn't belong to Solomon. What right does he have to this throne? Completely disregarding what David had said, what the Lord had said, God had personally chosen Israel's first three kings. Do you know that? He chose Saul. He chose David. He chose Solomon. The kings in Israel didn't choose themselves. This was God's kingdom. This was God's people. Adonijah was aware of that. But instead, I'm going to be the one that becomes king. You know, such a man is never fit to lead God's people. And that is, that was not only true of Israel, but it's especially true of the church. Think about this for a moment. I want you to turn to 3 John chapter, or 3 John Verses 9 through 12. I want to see something here. 
John kind of describes a man in a church kind of like Adonijah. Third John, verses 9 and following. John says, I wrote something to the church. Paul wrote a letter to this church. But the church didn't get it. Why? But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren, meaning the faithful, probably servants of Paul, people that worked alongside Paul in his ministry, either. And he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. This man is a dictator. He doesn't listen to Paul, doesn't listen to other faithful brethren. He knows what's best for the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. That's a reference to this man. But what is good? The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil is, has not seen God. In other words, Paul calls this man out. He's not a servant of Christ. He's not a servant of God. This man is a dictator managing the church the way he wants What he says goes. He's kicking people out of the church for whatever reason. He determines who's in and who's out. Verse 12, Demetrius, this is the contrast, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. In other words, this man, Diatrophes, or Fez, or Fees, he doesn't have a good testimony. Look at who he is. And then in contrast, who should they be listening to? Demetrius. He's received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. In other words, what John is doing here is he's calling out this leader who's more interested in himself and his own leadership and determining what's right and what's wrong. And he's putting people out of the church who disagree with him. He's a dictator. Reminds me of Adonijah. I will be king. Reminds me of when Jesus caught his disciples arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You remember that? I'm going to be the greatest. No, 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 I'm going to be the greatest. And what did Jesus tell them? The one who's least. The one who becomes a servant. That's who God wants to lead his church. Not a man like John describes. Not a man like Adonijah. There have been tons of articles, books, podcasts, and even sermons over the last couple of years that have been talking and addressing what's referred to as the crisis of narcissism in leadership in the American Evangelical Church. I mean, it's shocking when you just do Google search and you find the number of people that are addressing that topic. And part of the reason is that for years the church has gone to these leadership models of building churches that is more akin to building a business. And so they've, there was one individual, I was reading an article not too long ago, he was really dismayed, he was part of a large mega church, he was walking into the church one day, he was an associate pastor of some kind, and as he walked in on the glass doors, he saw this poster for a leadership conference that his own church was hosting, and he saw a list of names on it, there were, I think he said 12 people on it, 10 of them were unsaved, only two were believers, and they had brought them into the church to do a leadership conference. The ten were basically CEOs and leaders of businesses. And he began to do his research, he began to look at this stuff, and he realized it's interesting because the one trait that most CEOs have in common across the board, now this isn't true of everybody, but it's a fairly common trait 
with CEOs. Anybody know what that trait is? Narcissism. It's all about me. It's all about myself. And so he began to then look into and research the number of failings that there have been with church pastors in the evangelical church in America over the last 20 years. You know what he began to find? Is time after time after time again, their number one trait was narcissism. Do you expect it to turn out any differently? I remember reading the story of James McDonald and his fall from grace at Harvest Church in Chicago and some of the emails that have been released, his own emails, some of the elders, the 20, 20 different elders that had left his church and their testimony of how he would make comments about this is my church, I built this church, and if you kick me out, I will tear down this church. In fact, there's evidence, there's actual audio recording that he threatened to hire a hitman to take out an individual. Now, I don't say that to disparage James McDonald, but there is a serious problem there. When Mark Driscoll got kicked out of Marsh Church, very similar, you listen to his, el- over 20 of his former elders and pastors that worked alongside him would talk about the verbal abuse and the other things that would take place during elder meetings. And so what this individual had done is he had studied this, had looked at time after time after time, moral failing, failings, leadership failings with churches or with pastors of large churches in the United States he saw the same trait narcissism me I did this God put me here for a reason in fact one of the challenges I had at a former church was when we started to question some leadership we were told this is God's man and we don't question this as he sat there and didn't even say himself no 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 that's not the way this works I'm not the authority figure here. And so, as we look at Adonijah here, one of the takeaways is that's not the way that God's church is to be shepherded and led. Peter gave us a picture. For, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter gives us a picture of what God expects of leaders. 1 Peter chapter 5. Just the first four verses. Therefore I exhort the elders among you and your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You know, I have to be careful here. I don't want to sound arrogant or proud or step on toes. But why is it that so many pastors of our churches today, large churches, are wealthy? I mean, literally wealthy, multiple homes. You know, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But so many make their wealth because of their ministry. And that's what drives them to produce book after book you know one of the things and it's funny because even John MacArthur who I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for has three homes is worth well over he's well into six figures seven figures in, in his income and I, I don't I'm not challenging that but he does give away a lot of his stuff too meaning you can go on to MacArthur the website for grace to you and all that and all of that's given, doesn't sell the CDs 
You know, and so there's credit that I give there. But I also personally struggle a little bit with that because of the value of some of the homes and some of the other things. I, I struggle with that. I'll be, I'll admit that. If anything, it doesn't look good sometimes for the leader of God's churches or the shepherds of God's churches to be making millions. You know, Rick Warren, as much as I disagree with so much of what he says and does at times, if I understand correctly, gives away 90% of what he makes, whether it's salary, books, other things. Maybe there's some precedent in there for that. Well, my point is that Peter tells us it's not for sordid gain. He goes on, nor yet as lording it over them, verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, Anijah was the wrong man for the job. I will be king. No, sorry, Adijah. Adonijah. You're not going to be the king. God doesn't care for a man like Adonijah to be king. Another takeaway is it comes from something the author wrote about Adonijah. I want you to look at verse 6. Isn't this interesting? Verse 6. His father had never crossed him at any point, at any time, by asking, why have you done so? This is an interesting... In fact, Matt and I had a conversation about this. There's an interesting statement here in the, in the Hebrew, and um, it appears to be an idiom. And what I mean by that is, when the, when the author here writes this in verse 6... His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? At first read, it looks like maybe he's talking about David knew what Adonijah was doing. That he's trying to make himself king here and David did not do anything about it. But actually, it's more of a reference to the fact that David had never corrected him growing up. The idiom there is from the days of his youth. It's the idea that Adonijah was never corrected. David sort of let Adonijah do what Adonijah would do. Now, maybe it's because David had, what, eight or nine wives and how many kids. And, I mean, he's out fighting wars constantly. He wasn't apparently around a whole lot. The Bible tells us that a child who always gets his way becomes an incorrigible child. Doesn't receive correction. Simply does whatever he wants. What do we see in Adonijah here? Forget what the Lord says. Forget that I have a brother here who's been given the kingdom. This kingdom is mine. I'm entitled to it. I'll do what I want to do. And the author here, this comes really close to that line, doesn't it? Where he's, ass- he's assigning blame to David. It's a verse that's almost... You could take that verse out and it wouldn't change the meaning of the passage, would it? So why does the author put it in there? The author's explaining why Adonijah was like he was. And you know, David doesn't have a great track record with his prior sons. Now, is that disparaging David? It's being honest and real. We see David for who he is. And we're going to see it a little bit more even today. David had to be once again approached by Nathan the prophet because he didn't do what he should have done. And so the author's intent here is not to disparage David, and we're not doing that either. It's just to be real and honest. David screwed up with Adonijah. And the author does want us to see that. And so there's a lesson in there for us as well. That part of the reason Adonijah was the way he was is because partly he was never corrected as a child. Was allowed to get away with whatever he wanted. I wonder, as I look at so many of these pastors that have fallen and have been 
like I said, this author, as he has written this article about the narcissism that he sees, how many of them have simply gotten what they have always wanted, especially when they're in positions of leadership and they have a church that says, he's God's man, don't question, don't challenge, don't... And he sits there and simply nods his head. Leadership is not supposed to be that way. You know, that's why what we do here, Dustin, me, and Dave are your elder team, and I continually tell these guys, I am one guy of three. I don't have any more clout here. I don't get any more say here. Why? That's narcissism. God intended that the church be shepherded. You may have a primary teacher, but I have no more say here than anybody else. In fact, I don't have any more say here than anybody sitting in the pews either. That's the way we've chosen to lead this church. So you don't want them a No, I don't want the bottle watch. <laughs> but a pastor recently was caught on video demeaning his church because they hadn't bought him a five or a six hundred dollar watch from Costco. And then he had to turn around and apologize the next day and that was a production. So yeah. So it was a we had texted back and forth about that. But let's move on. So the first thing we see is that there's an individual like there always was in, in Israel, and we're gonna see if we were studying the books of first and second Kings, we would see that play out. They're always fighting for power. Okay? You don't like the leader, you take him out and somebody else becomes leader. That is not who shepherds God's flock. Shouldn't be that way in the church, and unfortunately, it kind of is in some respects in many churches. Let's move on. The next thing we see is how Nathan and Bathsheba intervene to ensure that Solomon actually becomes king. Look at verses 11 through 14. Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, your lord, does not know it? So David was apparently unaware that this had happened. So now, come, please, let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not heard, my lord, O king, or I'm sorry, have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king? After me, and shall sit on the throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are there, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the king, into the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was there ministering to the king. Let's stop there. So what we basically find here is that Nathan devises a plan to approach King David. David is not aware that Adonijah has done what he's just done. So Nathan devises a plan. Now, He reveals to Bathsheba what's going on. He warns her about the danger to her life and Solomon's life because the way this would play out is that Adonijah always knows that Solomon is there. And so what do you think would happen to Solomon the moment that Adonijah becomes king? Kings always took out anybody else that was a threat to their throne. And Nathan knows that. So he knows Bathsheba and and, uh, Solomon will be wiped out as soon as Adonijah becomes king. So what we find is that Nathan goes and he tells her this, spells it all out, devises a plan. He says, you go in, you talk to David, and then, when you get to the end, I'm going to go in and I'll confirm what you just said. Now, why does he do that? Probably because, remember, the law demands that two things be testified by at least two witnesses. When two witnesses come in, now you've just kind of proven, as long as they're not false witnesses, the truth. You don't rely on just one person but on multiple people. And so Nathan's following the law here, which is exactly what we would expect. So what does Bathsheba do? She follows through with the plan. Look at verses 15 through 21. So Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite 
was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and shall sit on my throne. Now behold, Adonijah is king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened fatlings and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king and Abathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. He has not invited Solomon your servant. As for, um, as for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. They told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall be king after me? And he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance and he has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, Long live King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And have you not shown your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So what do we see take place here? Nathan and Bathsheba now confront David. And that's exactly what it is. It's a confrontation. David had told Bathsheba, it was pretty well known that Solomon was supposed to be the king, but David didn't make Solomon king yet. He's on his deathbed practically. They all knew that Solomon was supposed to be king. David should have made Solomon king. But because David didn't, now look at what happens. This is now the second time that Nathan has had to approach David. Now, in the first instance, it was pretty grave sin. He had murdered Uriah so that he could take his wife and sleep with her. Actually, he had the other way around, slept with her, and then to try to cover it up, killed Uriah. And so Nathan had to approach David. If you think about it, this is now the second time that Nathan has had to intervene because David didn't, in this case, didn't do something that he should have done. And because of that, it put the kingdom in jeopardy. It put Solomon in jeopardy along with Bathsheba as well. Potentially could have torn the kingdom apart. So one of the takeaways here is that we have this man, Nathan, who has to step up and do what David, in some respects, should have done and calls him to account. If you look at Nathan's motives, it's quite a contrast to Adonijah's. Remember, Adonijah, he wants to be king. I will be king. Arrogant, narcissistic, steps in. I'm sure he probably uses his argument, look at my dad, he's old, he's decrepit, I'm the the one that's, you know, the oldest son, this is mine, I'll take Israel into the future, I can lead you all. David's old and decrepit. But Nathan's motives are quite different. Because his motive is very, very simple. God's purpose and God's plan. That's what's motivating Nathan here. I find it interesting that um, in the first instance, Nathan is 
specifically called by God to go to David. But in this instance, there's no indication that God had to reach out to Nathan. Nathan simply knew God's plan. David had made it known. So Nathan knew it, then Aniah knew it, David's mighty men knew it, Adonijah knew it, Bathsheba knew it, everybody knew it. Nobody's doing the right thing. But Nathan, purely motivated by the fact that he wants to see God's purpose and plan fulfilled. And so he's the one that comes up. What an amazing prophet. What an amazing man of God. Simply knows the right thing to do, knows God's plan, and that's his heart. Now, think about this. By doing what he's doing here, what happens if it doesn't work out? He's now on the short list with Solomon and Bathsheba. And anybody else that opposed Adonijah. And yet, what does he do? He goes into the king. He simply did it because he knew what God's plan was, and he acted on that behalf. But you notice something else in this passage? Notice the way that Bathsheba and Nathan approach David. I mean, there is, there's respect there. They bow before him. They're gentle with him. They ask him questions. Did you do this? It's done very gently, very graciously. In fact, even the New Testament tells us that when you confront, Paul did this with Timothy, this to be done with grace and mercy and tenderness and hopes that this person's heart will be changed. We have to be careful the way that we confront. But when we look at this passage, this is, believe it or not, a fairly gentle rebuke, and we have to see it that way. Bathsheba, even up earlier, says in verse 20, As for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. David, you are the king. They're all looking at you right now. And what does she say? Are on you what? To tell them who should sit on the throne. This is not Adonijah's Adonijah's job. David, it is your job. All Israel looks to you. It is your job to tell them who the next king is supposed to be. And David hadn't done that. And so, even her words here are gentle. But this is a rebuke. This isn't just a suggestion. She's calling David out here. Just like Nathan does as well. In fact, when he says, verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 25, for he's gone down, he explains all this to him. Look at what he's done, and they're all celebrating. Long live King Adonijah. That should have startled David. Wait, no, 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 Adonijah's not supposed to be king. It's supposed to be King Solomon. But even the way that Nathan approaches here, but me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, your servant Solomon, he's not invited. Has the king, and this is how he says this, has the king, or has this thing been done by my lord the king? In other words, did you change your mind, David? Did you tell Adonijah to become king? He doesn't accuse him of anything, but by using this rhetorical question of sorts, and have you not shown to your servants, your most, most faithful people, who should sit on the throne after you? Those are some pretty tough words. Because he's looking at David and saying, did, did you do this and not tell us, David? That's a gentle rebuke. And so what we find here, I think, and the best takeaways for us is, you know, I can't think about how important, or I can't think about, you know, what the church might be in today shape-wise if we didn't have people like Nathan. You know, it's interesting how oftentimes the challenge to leadership within the church comes from the body of the church, not the leaders themselves. In fact, sometimes leaders can all sit there while the leadership's going in the toilet 
And it isn't until the people sitting out in the pews finally start to speak up and say, there's a, there's a problem with this. But when they do that, it ought to be done gently. I mean, even the Bible tells us that as you approach an elder, it should be done a certain way. But thank God there are people like Nathan that simply see what God's purpose and plan is and are willing to simply act on that. That don't need God to come with some big clanging symbols and say, go talk to the leadership of this church or go talk. No, just they know the word. They know what God's heart, what God's plan is. And there's nothing in it for them. And in fact, they may get labeled for speaking up. But thank God there are people like Nathan. And that's what we find here. Because this would have ended very differently had Nathan and Bathsheba not done what they needed to do. And unfortunately, I don't know that we have enough of this sometimes in our church today. We have too many people we look to for leadership that are narcissistic, more like Adonijah. And people sit in the pews because it all looks good because people are coming in and it all looks great, but maybe it's not all good. Next up, we see that David actually responds very quickly. Look at verses 28 through 40. Then King David said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. The king vowed, made a promise, and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely, as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed, what? Do so this day. Before the sun goes down, Solomon is going to be king. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my lord the king live forever. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet join him, or anoint him, there as king over Israel and bow I'm sorry, gosh, I'm struggling with these words and blow the trumpet and say long live King Solomon notice the direct contrast to what Nathan said earlier long live King Adonijah that's the poetic poetic statement of the passage I think a little twist there verse 35 then you shall come after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over all Israel and Judah. Benaniah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord King say, As the Lord had been with my Lord the King, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, or my, uh, my Lord King David. Verse 20, uh, 38, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on the king's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. I want to focus on just two things with this passage. The first is that David responded immediately. You know, that's something that um, we've kind of seen with David's character. Is He doesn't always do the right thing, but when he's confronted, he always seems to respond immediately and then does the right thing. In fact, um, 
Give me a couple examples here. When David was confronted over his banishment of his son Absalom, remember he just sort of banished his son Absalom for good reason, trying to take his throne from him. But then supposedly when it was time to maybe forgive the son and bring him back, David sort of brought him back, but just shunned him. But he was confronted on that. And he finally did the right thing when he was confronted, but he did it immediately. Um, When Nathan confronted David over his sin regarding Uriah and Bathsheba, what did he do? Immediately there's remorse. Didn't take long. You know, you're the man. And he just was, oh, I'm the man. When the Lord was angry with David for taking the census, and he starts, he brings pestilence upon Israel, what did David do? Man, he just immediately starts to plead with the Lord. You know, hold me responsible. It's not Israel. He had sinned. The Lord judges, and David responded immediately. The same is true here with Bathsheba and Nathan. I mean, when they approached David, David responded immediately. He said, okay, it'll be done by the end of today. And he immediately puts into place a plan. And so I think our takeaway from that is it gives us an example of how we're supposed to respond when confronted, whether it be by a Nathan or somebody else. It shouldn't take like pulling teeth to get remorse. I think that's why David was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. But boy, when he was called out on something, look at how he responded. That's the tenderness, the heart that God expects. Our leaders aren't perfect. Pastors aren't perfect. They're going to make mistakes when they do and they're confronted. If you see their tenderness of their heart and you see genuine remorse and you see them respond immediately, who was the individual we just texted back and forth about recently here? Um, It was a pastor. Oh, Anyway, um, he had been communicating with a woman in his church. Nothing sexual going on, um, but was a little bit too friendly in the sense that it was a woman that started texting him. And his wife knew about it. The woman's husband knew about it. The church had reviewed all of the texts. They say the only thing that they saw in there was that he was too close, meaning probably like a friendship, and he probably shouldn't have been. Um, they didn't believe there was anything else going on with that. And then there was some coarse joking that he did where they thought that was inappropriate. Well, the way that, it all, the way that this came about was after a service one day, one of the woman's friends came up to him and said, I don't think your text messages to this woman are appropriate. I think you're a little bit too close. And he immediately took it to his own elders and said, hey, you want to look at this? Maybe I've, stepped, maybe I've crossed the line here. They immediately investigated. They came back to him. They made some recommendations. He immediately took their advice, did exactly what he was supposed to do. And again, there was nothing, they didn't think there was anything else going on there other than, hey, she reached out to him. Her husband knew it. They were joking, texting back and forth. In hindsight, probably not wise. You know, it's much like with my wife and I. I'm not going to become best friends with another woman just because I think it's stupid. So I'm going to be careful about that. Well, he kind of got caught in that where he maybe didn't quite catch that soon enough. But his response was immediate when he was confronted by just a woman in the church. He's the one that brought it to the eldership, the leadership. And they've put some stuff in place. He's responded very graciously, very openly to all of that. That's the way it should be. So that's our first takeaway with that. How about another takeaway? David's wisdom and his brilliance in handling this. I I won't spend much time on this, but boy, he immediately calls Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the head of his mighty men. Why? Those are all key figures. David knew who to tap for this. He's going to go out there and show the public now. These are the most important people that are alongside me. 
And so he immediately calls on them to do this. It's brilliant because it shows divine authority with Nathan the prophet. It um, shows that David's the one that's in control of all this. He also tells them to go to Gihon. Why is Gihon important here? One is it was probably the most significant place in all of Israel at the time because it's where they got their water from. That's where their spring was. That was the place where people congregated every single day. And so he does it right there in the town square. But in addition to that, you know what was else, else was there? The Ark of the Covenant was there. That's where David put the tent to put the Ark of the Covenant. Now why that's important is because when Adonijah decided to make himself king, he went out to a place that they referred to as by the stone of Zoholeth, which most scholars believe was a Jebusite altar for worshiping Canaanite gods. And so what he does, what Adonijah does, he goes out to a pagan altar and sets himself up there as king. David takes him right into Jerusalem, most popular place, but right there where the Ark of the Covenant is. If that doesn't put a stamp of godly authority on this, that is God who has chosen this man, Solomon, to be your king. David was brilliant here. There's a certain amount of intelligence there. Last thing. Finally, the final thing we see is Solomon's first act as king. Look at verses 41 through 53. We'll just briefly touch on this. 41 through 53. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard of it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city making such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, or Abiathar, the priest, came. Then Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man, and bring good news. <laughs> Oops. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our lord, King David, has made Solomon king. The king has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. That was something else David did. Is he put Solomon on his, in his own personal motorcade and sent him right to sit on his own throne. Brilliant. The king also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Joiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they, whom, and they made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne to the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servants came to bless our lord, King David, saying, May uh, your God... Make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also thus said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted me one to sit on my throne today while my eyes see it. Then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified and they arose and each went on his way. Now how do you suppose Solomon should respond? Remember, Adonijah would have wiped out Solomon and wiped out Bathsheba and probably taken out Nathan the prophet. Why? Eliminate your enemies. What does Solomon do here as his first act as king? And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. And he rose and he went and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of, the, of King Solomon. For behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon said, if he's, worthy, if he's a worthy man, not one of the hairs of his head will fall to the ground, but if wickedness is found in him, then he'll die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and he prostrated himself before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, go home, go to your house. The very first act that we see with Solomon is an act of mercy, an act of grace, because Adonijah 
didn't deserve it. What does the Bible tell us about Christ? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that David and Solomon are supposed to be types of Christ, examples of Christ, I think this is a neat thing that the author does for us here. Christ at his heart and his soul is a merciful shepherd, a merciful king. He will ultimately execute judgment on his enemies, and Solomon will have to as well. But before that, there's mercy. There's grace. And I think that's probably our final takeaway from this. Is that King Solomon, he acted like every other king around them would have taken out his enemy. He deserved it. But instead, he exercises mercy. I would assume at this point in Solomon's life, probably because he trusted the Lord. That isn't true at the end of his life. But here, I think he's going to have to trust the Lord. And so we have this amazing example of the mercy of our shepherd ultimately reflects Christ. So, that's our first chapter. There's a lot of neat stuff there just in terms of you know, things for us to chew on and all that. We'll continue through, but one of the tragedies as we look at this is as we look at Solomon's life, we have this great example of how he started here. Very humble man. You're going to see that next week as he, as he talks to the Lord. Very humble, very gracious. Um, a lot of trust and faith in the Lord and that lasts up until the 11th chapter. <laughs> And then things go terribly wrong and terribly sideways. But I think this will be fun for us to study through the life of Solomon because it's not so much about Solomon as it is the Lord. And we're going to see how that kind of plays out.